He was deeply formed by the Heidegger of it all. Um, for one reason or another, he saw the limitations, but he was trying to rescue some critical tools and bring them yeah. into mm -hmm, a historical yeah. materials framework. Now, whether that's ultimately successful, I think you know, all four of us tend to think it was, it was, it was you know, he probably did the best that you know, <laughs> one could do. Today, as usual, is Gil, Owen, and Will. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, everyone. Yo. So our episode today is about Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse was a German-American philosopher. He was born in Berlin in 1898 and then died in the U.S. in 1979. He did research in Berlin and Freiburg, which is relevant background information under the study of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger. He did his um, habilitation on Hegel, which is the second PhD that German philosophers have to do. And in this dissertation, he tried to marry phenomenology and historical materialism. And I started the reading that I gave the group to read today, start in this earlier period in the 19, late 1920s. And so for people who don't know, phenomenology is the study of the appearance of things, how we experience things, and thus meaning. Heidegger was very important for this area of philosophical research, and importantly, um, the Habilitation Project was opposed by Heidegger, and Marcuse later moved on, joined the Institute for Social Research at Frankfurt on Adorno's recommendation in the early 1930s, and his lasting legacy was as a member of the Frankfurt School, but also as sort of the grandfather philosopher of the new left. So there are a bunch of controversies surrounding Marcuse having to do with free speech, his essay on repressive tolerance, one-dimensional man. But I'm, we're actually not going to talk about that today. I mean, it might come up, but we're not really doing that. So I'm going to call this the B-side Marcuse mixtape <laughs> that we're recording here. Um, so what we're reading, it's a sort of a historical arc, a chapter from a collection of essays called Heideggerian Marxism, um, a chapter from Eros and Civilization, published in the 50s, and then after that, One Dimensional Man, um, published in the 1960s, for which he is best known. I'd like to introduce Marcuse by saying that I think the through line in all of his thinking is alienation. And it's the primary diagnosis that he makes of the modern period. So we've talked at, in various episodes about these central Marxian concepts, uh, exploitation, alienation, reification. The Frankfurt School is famously very preoccupied with alienation and reification. And I think that Marcuse is the one who is most preoccupied with alienation. And I think that with Horkheimer and Adorno, you get more of the reification side, but obviously they all intersect. So what Marcuse tries to do from the late 1920s is to refit Heidegger's critique of modernity to the post-war period of affluence and mass culture. So he takes Heideggerian concepts like everydayness and thrownness, and he tries to reformulate them to become a critique of not just modernity as such, but of mass society, um, that kind of everyday uh, existence of people in what he calls administered world. He tries to make sense of what it means to be thrown into a world that one does not create and how to not only think about history. And so he uses the Heideggerian concept of hist historicity to talk about what it the experience of being thrown into a set of determinations and how to act on historical necessity. So I think that the main question that he's trying to figure out is that given certain conditions, how do you live an authentic life? How, do you, how, how can you live authentically or even make authentic life possible in such a world that is characterized by alienation, commodity fetishism, and so on? So I think that what Marcuse tries to do is flip around 
some of what Heidegger is doing, which is normally called anti-humanism, humanism is a sort of human-centered way of doing uh, social criticism where you take human rationality as a method that you take your primary interest to be the humanity and its fate and what it can accomplish and how it relates to itself. So Heidegger is an anti-humanist. I think that's how people usually characterize him. But Marcuse tries to use these phenomenological concepts to try to articulate how an authentic life can be possible because he wants to make life fit for humanity. He wants to figure out how can such subjects who are constrained and determined in such ways create revolutionary acts, how can they come into being? And in the middle of his career, so in the 50s, I don't know if it's the middle exactly, but in the 50s, he takes a turn away from Heidegger into Freud. But I think he starts asking the same question. He wants to know what it means, how to live a more authentic life. And he starts to think about sexuality as a way of answering that question. So he talks about what, like living in a repressed sexual society, and then he starts to use Freudian concepts instead to talk about how to release the confines of like modern sexuality from the constraints of the performance principle and of instrumental reason and industrial society. And I think for Marcuse, a non-alienated labor, a freed eros, a freed libidinal energy would start to look like non-alienated labor. So the idea is to transform the sexual energy of human beings such that work becomes a matter of libidinal pleasure. And so there's this kind of very 1960s, uh, presaging the 1960s sexual revolution in which you start thinking of all the things that humanity could be capable of if it wasn't so neurotic and uh, punishing of itself. So he starts to talk about the libidinal economy that must change alongside the actual economy. And he tries to think about whether or not it's possible to build a civilization on a different basis, because Freud talks about repression and sublimation as just facts of civilization. And Marcuse wants to know, is it possible to think about this as no longer the necessary preconditions for civilization because we now we don't have the same constraints on the human species that we used to at this level of development. And instead, what we seem to have is a, um, a bunch of narcissistic neurotics who have like a narrow object-oriented sexual life. And he starts to kind of carry this thesis through in One Dimensional Man. And he sees instead of sexual sexuality becoming a liberatory force, he sees it as instead something that is attached to the wrong things, the wrong objects, to commodification, to consumerism. And that's why um, people become neurotic, like they turn inward and start to punish themselves and others. So this is a hostile and alienated form of subjectivity that is reified by mass culture. So by the end of One Dimensional Man, reification starts to enter the picture. And I think what's he's basically doing is he's trying to seek avenues for self-determination in the post-war period. And I think that it's also a turn, a decisive turn away from the problem of exploitation to that of alienation, which is why people tend to think about the Frankfurt School and the New Left as its influence on the New Left as being a turn toward culturalism. But what's really in the background, I think, is a search for a new revolutionary subject. He doesn't think the working class can be that subject anymore. And so he's trying to find whether it's through potential sexual revolution or the various new social movements that start to happen in the 60s. He's looking for that subject. And I think that that is what makes it so distinctively of the new left, because by the time you get to the 80s, critical theorists stop looking for that subject. And I think that's why he's so paradigmatic for that generation. So I will leave it to the rest of you all to tell me what you thought about three pretty different eras in Marcuse's life. Yeah, I, I, I'll start. Well, I'll just start like by saying this, that I was kind of shocked by just how in the Heideggerian weeds he was in this late 20s essay. So Being in Time mm-hmm. is 1927, and he writes this piece, Contributions to a Phenomenology of Historical Materialism in 1928. So it's like one year later, and he is like full-throated like Heideggerian phenomenological existential ontology 
like he does even there have problems with Heidegger, which is interesting in which he is already trying to articulate. And I think it's going to be the basis for like a full break with Heidegger in the years that follow by like the 1930s when Heidegger is appointed as the rector, um, I think at Freiburg and then joins the Nazi party, you know, Mark Hughes breaks with him very decisively and they, you know, he meets with him and is like, are you going to renounce this? And he's like, no, actually, I, I think that stuff's cool, actually. Um, but Hager's uh, like, I'm, I'm real good. I'm There's no way yeah. this won't look great <laughs> 20 years down the road. <laughs> no, when we were talking about ho- his- historical destiny, you thought about class struggle and revolution. I was thinking about like the national Volk, destiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Volk, yeah. The, the real way being can express itself so we could recover it. Yes. So I think there's something interesting about you know, thinking about why he abandons Heidegger and why he abandons Heideggerian approaches. But also maybe we could start out by asking, like, thinking a little bit about what was attractive to him in the first place about this new sort of thing that was happening with Heidegger. And he himself says mm-hmm. in a bunch of places that it seemed to him, it seemed to a lot of people at the time, um, Arendt, whatever, a bunch of other people who were his students, Heidegger students, that he represented a new, more concrete approach to philosophy that the kind of then dominant philosophical tendencies of like neo-Kantianism of positivism uh, were very abstract and very idealist and by thinking about things like what is it like an average and everyday situation and thinking about things like yeah anxiety boredom like that seemed it felt to them that this was a concrete philosophy one that actually spoke to like you know lived human needs ironically enough, given Heidegger's supposed anti-humanism, as he said. So I think that's interesting. And then, of course, the interesting thing is, like, you know, Marcuse, bless him, unlike a lot of other people, comes to his senses and realizes that actually this isn't a concrete philosophy at all, right? That, like, with Heideggerian sort of approach, actually, it's very abstract, you know, Um, that, you know, we're, we're actually not talking about historical material reality at all we get more and more sort of otherworldly as heidegger's own project develops but the seeds are already there and being in time yeah i I think like one through line from that heidegger stuff to the later stuff is you know because he abandons heidegger and then he turns to freud and he seems to be like looking and i guess one of my questions would be is why was he why was he so drawn to searching outside of marxism Mm. In order to, what does he think Marxism needs to be supplemented with that he was looking for in Heidegger, mm. and then like broke with, and then and then really looked for in, in psychoanalysis? And I think it has to do with. I mean, I like that you emphasized in your introduction, Lily, in the um, that he was looking for a new subject, and that it was really yes, it's alienation, and in a in a broader sense, it's like the problem of the subject in Marxian social theory. And he seems to find resources for thinking through subjectivity. I mean, he sees it in early on in like the concepts of authenticity in Heidegger and living an authentic life and resoluteness and all of that. And then later on, like, you know, after he abandons that, he finds um, he, you know, conceptualizes this notion of non-repressive desublimation. We can talk about that later, but it's a kind of liberated libidinal Mm. life. Right. So, yeah, maybe the through lines. I I think one place to start would be that the through line seems to have to do with trying to think through the subject, through the nature of subjectivity in ways that I guess he thinks Marxism on its own isn't sufficient to, to do. It's more of a, he thinks it's better as a theory of reification, as a theory of the, of the object. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say, I, you know, all, all three of you said this. I had to dust off the old you know, tomes to get through Heideggerian <laughs> Marxism. Yeah, My yeah. goodness. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I found it you know, kind of hard to get through, you know, I'm, not, I'm not shading Heidegger, Yet, but it's that you know Marcuse. You know the follow up on what Owen was saying is Marcuse is actually trying to do a normed project with this Heideggerian infrastructure. But and I get it, Heideggerians will find some way to attenuate and complicate this claim. It's always more complicated. But being in time is not a straightforward normative project. Yes, when he says you know Dasman, it can seem like he's critical of Dasman. And then you when you whenever you're like in the seminar, you're like, oh yeah, so Heidegger thinks Dasman is that no. Dasman is a mo- no, modality of the existential, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not supposed to be you know, a straightforward normative proposal. But when Marcuse is talking about authenticity, he actually thinks that this is you know, an actual political project. And at least Heidegger, and also, again, Heidegger did, technically didn't finish being in time. But Heidegger tries to say this is not 
moralistic. This is not a politics. And so what I see him doing is, you know, I actually think about it in my head. I don't know if this is completely right, that he thinks that the Marxian critique got capitalism correct. I think what he's attracted to with, you know, Heidegger and then Freud is that we now have a paradigm for what has happened to the subject in 20th century modernity. And so it seems like he's trying to bring the critique of capitalism and the critique of modernity together in order to understand something like, and this sounds banal to say it, but what is different from when the time that Marx was writing? What new problems or new concepts or um, new frameworks do we need in order to deal with this moment from the 1920s up into the 1960s? And so I think sometimes people are like, you know, the critique of capitalism is different than the critique of modernity, or you know, we have to think them together. I think that this is what he's struggling with. He is trying to struggle with, you know, it's not just capitalism as a mode of production, but you know, what does it mean to be sorry for the jargon, thrown as these types of creatures that have inherited all also the, the philosophical architecture that has come with modernity and industrial society. So I think he thinks that this is a, a conjuncture mm -hmm. that requires this type of mediation uh, that will supplement Marxist thought if we're going to think the subject. I think he did think that. And I think that I guess what I was struck by was the interest in, in authenticity that Marcuse puts forward. Yeah. He's very yeah. unashamed of this, and he means it in, a, I think, a totally different way than Heidegger does. Right. I think he means it in a different way in the sense that he wants to know how the subject can relate to itself in an unalienated way. And he sees the reasons for alienation as being a part of the social structure. Whereas Heidegger's theoretical architecture is like militantly anti-materialist in that way. So finding yeah. the source of alienation mm -hmm. in the social structure is the most superficial level of critique for for Heidegger. And I think that, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But what's compelling about it is that Heidegger points out this sense of alienation in this much more mystical way. But when he talks about anxiety, about the thrownness, about the lack of sense of being able to control that, like part of the promise of Marxism is that rational creatures like ourselves can, in fact, get some control over it. And he wants to know, given this existential experience that I'm having of feeling totally the opposite of that way, how can a subject who feels like me do anything different than what I already am? So there's this mm -hmm. almost, I think that's why it's like a phenomena, interest in phenomenology, like the part of what it is like to experience that problem mm -hmm. really interests him. Yeah. The, all the facets of the experience of alienation. Yeah, and okay, so this is, uh, I think out of the four of us, I'm going to be the friendliest to Heidegger right now. But I don't know, like, you know, when Heidegger is doing these analyses of anxiety and trying to also, however this ends up, but, you know, I think also Heidegger's trying to develop a novel concept of freedom that isn't, you know, simply determinism, but also isn't simply voluntarism. Um, Marcuse also is very, very drawn to this. He tries to put together why necessity and freedom aren't necessarily opposites, that, you know, there is a notion of freedom of being able to actually stand within and act within your historically determined time rather than thinking you can escape it. And so, you know, what I was going to mm -hmm. say is, you know, when Heidegger is talking about anxiety and all of that, I think that there is a way, if you are warm to Marxism, she's like, well, he's actually keying into something that could really be explained by, you know, transformations in the mode of production. The world determines you, but you're not quite sure who is determining you, where this you know, influence is coming from. The world seems to be slipping away. You know, uh, all that solid melts in the air, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so I can see why someone would think maybe we can use these tools now that we are in a more fully industrialized mm -hmm. and developed mode of capitalism to actually get into what is the structure of the subject now under these new conditions. And so Marcuse is 
trying to bring this together and say, we also just need a, a, a novel, robust account of freedom that can think the, the subject in history that isn't simply, I can do whatever I want, but also isn't simply mechanistically determined by whatever came before. Yeah. And that, that might end up being kind of mystical, but I, I think at least the Heideggerian Marxism Marcuse, like that's what a lot of these people think that they're doing. We're going to develop a new ground for freedom as such. Yeah, I think that's that's part that is accounts for a lot of the appeal that his work later has. And I know that there's like a caricature of the kind of like hippie or even a caricature of like this um, of like sexual liberation or something that where it is it is a kind of voluntarist right. like act of freedom. And Let's it, just it be chill, on. man. Oh no, I became that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But we should be clear that I think even from this early work all the way through the later stuff that like Marcuse always pairs these like, calls for liberation with an account of like what has to happen at a macro structural level at the economic level in order for this to be possible. Right. So like, he's not like, uh, you know, he says at one point something really funny in Eros and Civilization, like uh, where he's like, listen, I'm not talking about a society of sex maniacs. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, I thought you were. Oh, okay. I feel like some folks in the sixties didn't it's get true. the memo. I, I, on, that was, uh, that. that was what I was reading. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. So uh, he's like, listen, I'm talking about like, a world that is like, where we're, you know, a liberated world that is invested with joy and pleasure in all facets of life. And this is only going to happen through a centrally planned, like, economy <laughs> with, de with democratic yeah. aspects. You know what I mean? Like, but a centrally planned economy in which we utilize rationally all of these technological and industrial forces that we have at our disposal and we remake institutions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a yeah. totally transformed world is the world in which all of this great liberatory sexual stuff can happen, <laughs> right? Like, not, not like at Woodstock. <laughs> not at yeah. Woodstock. <laughs> yeah. yeah, going to Burning Man or fi yo no. fire festival. That that's that's not quite what Mercuso was talking about. about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe we can be you know, we can obviously go back to the Heidegger and Marxism stuff, but I guess we can move to this 1950s middle period stuff of eras and civilization because I was just you know completely bowled over by this you know because what's really fascinating is Marcuse never gives him the easy out. He's like, yo, what I'm talking about, he's calling this like a, a reconstructed Freudianism. So partial, partially, he's trying to say people have taken up Freud have gotten it wrong. And he also thinks Freud got some things wrong. But, you know, he's trying to say, yeah, we have all of these instincts and forces that make uh, make up ourselves at this, you know, uh, pre-subjective level. And we live under these conditions of affluence and labor that distort these energies that make it seem as if their only release can be in in terms of this uh, exploitative structure, um, structure, but he's like, but let's be clear. Like, I'm not saying that if we go back 300 years, let's just have a bacchanalia of you know sexual <laughs> liberation. He's like, no, 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 no. Some sublimation and repression was necessary for us to develop our knowledge and technology yeah. to become orderly people. And so he's is that he's responding to people who might misunderstand orderly him? Wait, I'm sorry. Did you orderly say people, orderly just people? Did I, um, did I? I mean, wow, that feels like a Freudian slip. I don't know. Like, yeah. oops. I'm into it. I'm not. The, no, I wasn't. Let's be orderly. Let's, let's, yeah, no, let's yeah. do it. I, enough. Y'all too free out here. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's you. really important for him that he's saying what I'm describing doesn't mean we're turning back the clock. In fact, what I'm describing is only possible right. because the instruments of production and level of technical knowledge have reached a certain point. He's like. Only now can we actually have, you know, this fun, joyous thing. But without it, he's like, yeah, you're right. Civilization would not be have become anything. We've just been stuck in the mud mm -hmm. like pigs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're welcome for that image, by the way, yeah, of just, you know, these humans just rolling around in the mud, just pure genital fixation. Again, Woodstock. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it was fascinating to me, like, to, to connect this through line. I like the direction that, the, that we're going here. Because my red alert starts going off the minute anyone starts talking about authenticity. I just, like, for mm -hmm. me, like, authenticity is, like, 
we're already doing fascism. Like, like when people start talking about being authentic. <laughs> whoa, 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 This whoa, is my, whoa, whoa, this is my worry. My right? man. This is what I'm what always like, worried oh, about. Oh, fash? Yeah. Okay. You know, people start talking about being authentic and I get nervous and I start looking around to see if they're locking the doors, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you reach for your gun. I reach for my gun. Um, like, so it's interesting that, you know, for him, when he's reading Heidegger, he's, He's seeing that like the, the language of authenticity is trying to get at what Marx calls alienation. One of the interesting things that I learned sort of historiographically is that it's only a couple years later than this that the 1844 manuscripts are finally published for the first time. And when he reads those, he sees like, oh, this was what I was looking for in Heidegger, right? This like philosophical account of alienation mm -hmm. and one that's tied specifically to, again, changes in the mode of production as a historical phenomenon that makes possible now a kind of freedom maybe for the first time in civilizational terms but i don't know like how do you how do you think of getting outside of these repressive apparatuses and what is distinctive about modernity like he talks at certain places about like a repressive desublimation which i don't know if you guys can mm -hmm. can you help me unpack these concepts i'd never know how to think freud this is one of my stumbling blocks but it seems like he thinks there's something specific to the way that there is a kind of like a socially produced like disaffection or like an like an anti-cathexis or something like this. Yeah, he like tracks. I mean, I don't fully understand this, but I think what he's doing is like tracking the emergence of like sublimation. So taking like raw libidinal energy and redirecting it into like socially accepted and socially valorized practices. Right. And so like he's tracking this this development. And like you said, Will, at a certain point, he says this was necessary. It allowed us to become like knowledge creating animals. You know what I mean? It allowed us to to generate all it managed to make a bunch of progress, basically. And then at a certain point, he thinks like it and he follows Freud here that it becomes productive of all these kinds of neuroses because of the way that the sublimation occurs. Like it's like neurosis stuff. For for the vast majority of people, all this like sublimation of our libidinal desires gets all just invested in the private sphere of like a monogamous like patriarchal relationship. Yeah, right. And so like the sphere of work has no there's no pleasure whatsoever in the sphere of work because it's you know you know it's labor. It's not it's alienated labor, and the whole of your humanity isn't present. So there can't be the kinds of desire that is typically understood as amorous at play in, mm. in labor, right? And so, like, the idea, I think, would be, when he talks about this kind of non-repressive non sublimation, that's all what I just described is repressive sublimation. We have to, like, repress all these desires and like concentrate desires them. Desires, like, sublimated, like, the reality principle is, like, pro forma, the performance principle. He yeah. thinks that that is a, novel, uh, a novelty yeah. of capitalism, though, I think. The performance yeah, yeah. principle, Interesting, yeah. because you know, I, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I no, no, that's all right. Um, I'm that, just thinking you know, about, the, I'm thinking about loud, I think yeah. you know that the the performance principle follows. Uh, you know, I think Marcus says somewhere you know from also the um, the creation of new divisions of labor of the uh, productivity divisions of labor, and so what happens is it's not just you know the reality principle for uh, listeners who who don't know is you know this idea that you know basically not everything is possible. <laughs> you know, you don't just get to have you know yeah. you know birthday cake every day. <laughs> like you got to eat your vegetables, but the performance principle, principle, at least what he says in the beginning of Eros of Civilization, is you know, a historically specific form of the reality principle. And I think this is important for Marcuse because he wants to say, if we confuse reality principle for the performance principle, we end up naturalizing forms of what Owen was calling repressive sublimation that might not actually be necessary. And so the performance principle mm. is you know, um, think about the person who invests so much of their personality into their day job, I'm going to become the best mm. manager ever, mm. which means I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to snitch on all my fellow co-workers, <laughs> but, you know, this is how I know I'm good. And, you know, I see Macruza being yeah. like, isn't that kind of a, a brutal form of life, you know, where your self-worth is invested in this sphere where you don't even get to see the material gains of it and it separates you from other people? And so your only release, as Owen was saying, is this really circumscribed private sphere that probably can't hold all that energy, which is why sublimation, mm -hmm. I imagine, is necessary. Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely right. And like the repressive sublimation for him like produces a kind of neurotic social atom, right? And all of the aspects, you know, he talks about 
what a redeemed or it's more Benjaminian language, but like what a what a transformed that's his language. What transformed work would look like so that it was work and not labor, right? Yeah, uh, it was disalienated work. That it would the cooperative element of it would be invested with all of these sublimated, you know, with all of these sublimated libidinal energy. There would be immense and new, unthinkable even kinds of pleasure in the cooperation of producing and reproducing our lives. But, you know, again, none of that is possible under a regime of repressive sublimation. You know? I have questions. I want to go back to the, the Heidegger stuff, because one of the things that really stood out to me, the reason I kind of frame this all as alienation, as the primary issue, I feel like the encounter with Heidegger is really thought provoking to me and disturbing to me. And it's one of the, I think, crucial ambiguities in how people talk and think about capitalism and what the problem with it is, and then therefore what the solutions to it are. So what do I mean by that? I think that the close proximity between these figures creates the ambiguous intellectual terrain in which right and left really merge in their critique of capitalism. Mm. Like I think what Mm. bothers me about Marcuse isn't that so like the things you just said I you know I don't really love thinking about things through the lens of sexuality to be honest but I don't I'm not has- <laughs> I'm I I prefer not to but I do see the thing you just said as being an idea of the left you know like you want to have a world that isn't constrained in the way that Will was describing and that has a different set of incentives and a different kind of flourishing in the way that Owen was describing. But on the other hand, I just don't really see how you arrive at that kind of conclusion from the starting point that he has in his preoccupation with subjectivity and alienation, because I think that it can easily just go in the other direction as well. And that's why Heidegger is so attractive. There's a whole world of left Heideggerians, you know? And to me, the the normative criteria of of so-called, yeah. But the normative criteria, like whatever is wrong with alienation, if it doesn't begin with some criteria to explain what you mean and who is doing what to whom, and, you know, I like the domination language, this becomes very murky territory. And it feels to me like this is where you get the culture war element of it, where it's like there are some things I culturally see as left, like I like, that's cool, and then things I culturally know are pretty fashy and I think that's bad. But the critique of capitalism is in so many ways the same. So it, that's what makes me feel like it doesn't generate good principles for me and, and actually feels mm. frustrating. I think that's a fair critique. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that, that I look at it, you know, and also I guess you know, I'm echoing what the four of us saying, you know, I'm, I'm not super jazzed at looking at sexuality. I think it's, it's part of just like, you know, Keep that behind closed doors. We don't we don't talk about this in private company. And I just hear Freud just like, look at you, a good bourgeois subject. Well done. <laughs> Patting me on the head. Thanks, thanks, Dad. Uh, Freud. Well adjusted. <laughs> well adjusted. But I I thought maybe partially what's going on with Bakuza is, you know, obviously there's something deeply normative in the project, but he's trying to have a deeper explanatory mechanism for, I'm going to be rather vulgar here. It's just like why are we so fucked up? And, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I almost look as, you know, partially there's like, you know, this descriptive project that's looking for firm normative foundations that are just really hard to found. But, you know, it seems as if he's trying to say something like, we do have these energies, these desires, and how have they become historically mediated and captured by these structures? And we won't get at that if we don't find a way of talking about them. And so, it seems as if he wants to say even things like working together and strategizing and doing that, you know, that that hard work that we know of as politics, you know, the the slow boring of wood requires a type of energy, a type of cathexis that if it is constantly being diverted or distorted, you're going to have people who don't even know how to engage with one another without engaging in over-the-top aggression and bitterness. We've all heard stories of quote-unquote woke politics run amok. And I think someone like Marcuse, look at all of this, this 
venting, this frustration yeah. that doesn't have you know a healthy channel. And so what it turns out into is like turning other people into objects that we just vent our rage and anger at. And so I see it as like trying to develop a, a type of descriptive framework, but you're right. I don't know what the firm normative foundations would be. It can go multiple ways, but it's like, I, you know, I look around and I think lots of distorted subjectivity. <laughs> right. So let me just re reframe it. Like why this way and not another mm. way? So like the, the fasci answer to it is there is a different kind of authentic being. Yeah. Or there's a different way of reclaiming being, of expressing it. Mm -hmm. And this usually has to do with some sense of like destiny and community or whatever, I just want to know, like, outside of, like, cultural signals, the things I just like and don't yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. why would I choose one or the other, to be honest with you, except for that one seems bad to me and one seems more like my milieu, you know? So yeah, yeah. That, that's my, my problem. It's not just part of it is normative foundations. I guess that's, like, the proper political philosophy way of putting it. But I didn't really want to suggest I guess I could suggest that, but I'm I'm trying to like it's kind of like which way Western man and like why do I choose mm -hmm. one way or over another when these when these criticisms of capitalism are frankly functionally the same. Yeah, yeah, you could see like a certain kind of eco fash like kind of you know well yeah we need, we need to get back to like authentic life and this mode of existence is totally alienating so you know let's build a massive wall and go back to some like pre industrial or although you can't really do that with him I guess because he does so here's I think what his his response would be would be that. To be free, to go back to something Will was saying at the beginning, right, is to seize the necessity of your historical moment. And that necessity isn't, like, there is one, look, I, maybe you can help me explain what that actually <laughs> means. But, like, he seems to think that the kind of new subject that he wants to appear in, the kind of other life that he hopes to see, as roughly as he sketches it, it isn't just any old possibility. It's He thinks that within the present, there is a certain necessity for overcoming certain contradictions, let's say, and that if we embed ourselves within the task assigned to us by the historical moment. I mean, but again, the way Heideggerians, yeah, the way Heidegger say, went with that was like the, ta right. the task assigned to us is like national, you know, nationalism. Right. It's nas national destiny and all that, right? So like, look, here's what I would say. Is I do think it's possible to disarticulate what, what Marcuse envisions from those like fashy kinds of modes of authenticity or social transformation. But I don't know that it's, like, it's there, but I don't know that it's a prominent central feature. You know what I mean? Like, I think the worry is totally found is still is well founded, regardless of the fact that I think he would he would think that he's got some 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 responses to it. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think Marcuse is a fascist. I'm I'm asking more. No, than yeah, you. no, yeah. <laughs> no. But how is it? Yeah, the question is how is it very different? <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here, yeah, here, here, here's one uh, other Sorry, way. Sorry, Herbert. <laughs> I, I love personal, just at a spontaneous <laughs> level. I got a lot of love for Herbert, so I know he's not that popular in some parts of the left. Oh, yeah. I, I actually have a lot of fun reading him as well. I, so I think the other part of what's going on with the necessity is that through line for also Marcuse is that, you know, there's no turning back the clock. And so, you know, I actually see some affinities between Marcuse and Bloch mm. on this point, where they think yes, that there yeah. are dangerous utopias, the dangerous yeah. utopia of returning back to nature, returning back to mm -hmm. unalienated life. And what I think both of their answers, though, uh, I'm actually writing something where I think you know, they depart on how they use Freud. Freud. Uh, Bloch is really hostile to Freud. He hates the idea of you know, recovery and anamnesis. He thinks it's always about something that we have yet to create that doesn't yet exist. While I think for, for Marcuse, a lot of this is you know, recovering these energies, these desires that are in us. But both of them think something like this. These desires are there whether we theorize them or not. And so the, the political gambit is how are those desires, those affects, those libidinal forces, how are they going to be um, sublimated and appropriated? And it seems as if you're right. They can be appropriate in a sort of fascist direction of we need to return. And what Marcuse seems to be saying is something like, if that is a project we want to you know, militate against, we have to show that there's a different way of you know, expending these energies socially. And so I think you know, it turns back on this. It's like there is actually no necessary way that you know, the reconstruction mm. of psychic social life will go, but political projects will often try to speak to those levels and, and to just leave them on the table 
is risky. That's and, a good you know, point. Bloch yeah. thinks that that's partially what happened you know, with the rise of Nazism, that the territory of the utopian imagination was kind of abandoned by the left. And, you know, mm. and this discourse of returning to the soil dominated and it to horrifying consequences. Maybe, mm. maybe this is part of it, too, that I'm thinking a little bit about Adorno's critique of, of, of Heidegger. And I think Marcuse is going to be very maybe maybe aligned here right like with the kind of ontology ontologizing naturalizing maybe that we get with someone like heidegger you're gonna tell me that like anxiety is just like a fundamental structure of being right oh, and it's like oh okay, nice. fundamental yeah and it's like okay yeah. then there's nothing to do but like to manage that maybe or like mm. to 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 think about like you know oh oh is b- boredom right like Heidegger's got a whole lecture course on profound very boredom. long it's a very long <laughs> ironically boring discussion of <laughs> profound boredom right mm-hmm. but like when you when you're doing ontology the way that a Heidegger does you're saying something like yeah like oh you know you got anxiety like for for sure that's because that's like inscribed in the very heart of being. There's nothing to be done about it. Whereas <laughs> it just sounds so fucking stupid. When you that <laughs> it doesn't sound great. So, I will say that. So then, like you know, but this is like a problem for like left Heideggerianism, and I think like a Marcuse wants to say like, no, this is why we go to historical materialism, right? It's the the historical materialist analysis of this says like, yes, there are social political economic reasons that are like historically specific as to why we've got this boredom thing why we've got this anxiety thing it's not just fucking a fact of being right like it's it's a it's a historical mm-hmm. thing it's that not we- because we haven't read Anna, anaximander's fragment <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love how he shows how ahistorical Heidegger is. Like, that's his problem is right. he's trying to fill in the concept of historicity with, like, actual history. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with historicity. It's like an ahistorical yes. concept, <laughs> it, and there is no history in Heidegger. There's, like, the history of being, which, like, comes to us through, like, etymology and different aspects of language and stuff. Like, yeah, so... That's yeah. not history. And Gil, you, you, Gil, you tweeted something about this that I was reminded of when I was reading. I think you said something like a confusion about what materialism is. I can't remember what you were saying. What, I don't, what tweet is this? What did I do? <laughs> you said something about uh, about historical materialism. I love that uh, Gil etymology. doesn't even remember his tweets. It's just, yo, God moves through yeah, him. No, He's I'm a mere a vessel. Yeah. For the divine. I'm I am. People who think that doing history or historical oh, materialism is like doing the yeah. origin of Etymology. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, what yeah. I said was eto- anyways. What I said was etymology is the historical materialism of fools. <laughs> well, exactly, but or of Heidegger. Right? It just seems to me that a way of thinking about what's going on with Marcuse is you know, he was deeply formed by the Heidegger of it all. Um, for one reason or another, he saw the limitations, but he was trying to rescue some critical tools and bring them yeah. into mm-hmm, a historical yeah. materials framework. Now, whether that's ultimately successful, I think you know, all four of us tend to think. It was, it was, was, you know, he probably did the best that one could do. He shot a shot. He he shot a shot and produced some some interesting stuff, but I'm not quite sure. Um, But I I think it's uh, important that, you know, what he saw is that, you know, yeah, okay, Heidegger talks about history and historicity, but it just seems to me there's no way Heidegger means the same thing as what we would mean when we're talking about relations and forces of production, when we're talking about about the uh, arrangement of social historical forces and real material possibilities for emancipation. I mean, Heidegger did think that Marxism and liberalism, they both flatten being, whatever um, that means. But, you know, that is the thing he said. So I'm sure sure it was deep. So like, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, let me just say like (laughs) something that I was struck by when I was reading this is like, I think that in Heideggerian discourse, there is a just crazy confusion between temporality and historicity so like you know we're talking about whatever it is to be a dasein i was like imagining like i've i've got a happy little dasein but um <laughs> you know he's he, when marcuse is explaining like oh what is the historicity of dasein he's like it's that there's a past for us that has been and a being present and a futural orientation and i'm like that's just being in time that's just being a temporal being that's not history why would you say that's history mm-hmm. To just like, you know, have a past, present, and a future. That's so abstract, right? Like history is about, I don't know, mm-hmm. the specific location that you occupy in time. Like what you've, what you've concretely inherited, received. 
History is on tick. It's homies. very on tick. Yes, hate thank to, you. Hate to let you History's know about that. And it turns out I, that matters. I'm y'all. I don't know how you feel, but I'm I love the on tick. I love I'm it pro-ontic. so much. <laughs> yeah. I've never podcast. tried to get ontological. No man. I've just stayed straight on tick, and I've learned so much. I stay, I've learned so I much. Stay <laughs> I stay on tick. I stay on tick, yo. I, I literally came to the same conclusion when I was in grad school. People kept talking about ontology, and, and like I felt like when people talked about ontology or like being, it was always to like make sure that I was told that the thing I cared about was like the most superficial <laughs> level of reality. Yeah. And then at some point, I was like, "No, Not I'm just going to hang there. Yeah. Like I, I'm yeah. going to stay there, and like I'm going to I'm going to marinate." No, yeah, I'm going to take the gamble. I'm going to take the gamble yeah. that there's more explanatory power in like actual historical research than in pure mysticism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yo, yo, I'm just, I just feel like, you know, if I were out here and be like, that, that's mysticism. cope, that's cope. It's cope. Yo, that, that's what happens <laughs> when you yeah. don't read non-transliterated Greek, okay? <laughs> yo, that's your problem. Uh, I mean, yo, to, to, to bring it back to, to Marcuse, who thankfully he does transliterate whatever Greek he uses. So homie Bless. for that one. Bless. Love it. You know, I will <laughs> say, so I, I feel like I've been like trying to like be on the bit of the Marcuse train, but I think, I think the wheels do come off once we get to one dimensional man. <laughs> that is a relentlessly pessimistic text. My man is tired. He's like, y'all, y'all too affluent. Y'all have your Coca-Colas, your cars. Protesting is bullshit. There is no popular sovereignty. That's a bourgeois illusion. (laughs) And listen how he ends the book though. Like I want to let you make your point, but he says, yeah, no, Nur um der hoffnungslosen Willen ist uns die Hoffnung gegeben. It is only for the sake of those without hope that hope is given to us. I swear to God. It's like, whoa, oh. well, I'm, well that's, I'm um, glad I made it to page 200. <laughs> if you were expecting a solution, sorry. Fuck. Yeah, yeah no, he's pretty exhausted by the end. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess the one thing I would say, I don't know, maybe, I don't even know if this makes sense to me or if I'm committed to this, but I have an intuition about how difficult it is to do the kind of subject focus work in a Marxian framework that he does. Like there's a part of me that almost just at a kind of superficial level wants to give him credit for mm-hmm. like tr- for like focusing on these particular sets of problems where Marxists are always get, and I think in many ways rightly, get extremely frustrated and mad when you start talk, t- trying to talk about what does revolutionary praxis look like? Like what do we do? How do we orient ourselves differently in the world? Like how, yeah, what does, pra- yeah, what does practice look like? And, you know, a lot of the other Frankfurt School thinkers were extremely allergic to this kind of thing, thinking about revolutionary subjectivity, thinking about futures and getting a little too concretely utopian, which Marcuse certainly does. And I respect him for getting concretely utopian for all of the warts and like issues. Um, I love this about Sartre too. Like I want to hear at least people struggle to think about what the process of getting from like point A to point B involves. They make make wagers. What what kind of subjective intervention does it look like? Collective subjective intervention. Like what does it look like? What what the hell might it look? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, Marcuse, they, they make wagers. So Marcuse clearly made a wager. I mean, we haven't said much about it, about his search for a new sort of subject. He made his wager on things like, you know, the feminist movement, even, you know, um, the black student struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I sometimes don't think it's a fair philosophical argument to be like, we're now in 2022 and it seems like you were wrong. I think Marcuse thinks that whatever the intervention is going to be, there aren't going to be guarantees of success. And so he was just like, he was just groping, you know, around for any sort of two dimensionality, not even three dimensionality, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something that will break through. And of course, by this point, maybe his diagnoses are wrong. And I think um, Foucault kind of uh, clap backs a one dimensional man. is just like, oh, you think power is only repressive. It's also productive oh, though. Yeah. And Hooray. yeah, I think you know, I think that's an, I think that's Hooray. a hit job by the way. That's that's a hit piece, yeah, by the way. I feel like Marcuse knows There's that. There's plenty of productive on, elements of like repressive power in what he describes as repressive power in Eros and Civilization. It is productive of all kinds of desires. It's just yeah. they're not... They're not fulfilling ones. <laughs> They're crappy like, designs. So I think that's a, yeah, the, there's such a, when I remember when I first time I read the, 
that history of sexuality, like repressive hypothesis thing. I was like, oh, wow, this is mind blowing. It's true. They're all so dumb. And you literally go and like read any of the supposedly repressive discourses and they're not at all like, you know, <laughs> captured by this one dimensional, you know, to use that term, this yeah. one dimensional conception of, of the way that desire gets socially controlled. And dominated. as always, it turns out a lot of these people who get these hit jobs on them are way more interesting when you actually read what they have to say. Yeah. yeah. To your oh, point sure. though, about like him making wages. Like there was a bit towards the end of One Dimensional Man where he starts sound. He's you know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of James Boggs. He started talking about like yeah. there's like a paragraph where he says something that sounded like Boggs talking about the outsiders. I was gonna say yeah. the same thing. Yeah, where he's like, oh yeah, actually he says like as well. this is when he says he's like he loses faith in like the the working class as the, like the revolutionary right. subject and says it's this combination of outsiders, the unemployed and yeah. unemployable, deviant, like subproletarian, you know, um, yeah. revolutionary sub-proletarian, potentiality yeah. that he's like starting yeah. to clue into. And like, yeah, this is a break with like a traditional orthodox Marxism. Like, you know, whatever else you could say about him, he's a heterodox Marxist, right? But there's something yeah. I think, you know, he's he is looking. He's looking really hard for for ways out. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say in a kind of clumsy way. That's what I really respect about his work. And that I don't think you see very often from more like structure and history focused Marxian work. I mean, one thing that I, I wonder about this because I'm working on some stuff about the Frankfurt School because I am perplexed by these arguments about how they, you know, they, they turn to culture, they leave political economy behind. And I think this is true as far as it goes, but like there's also this revived interest in thinking about the first generation school, first generation and thinking about what is unsaid. So like the things that they would have assumed about political economy, mm. whether it's monopoly capitalism or contradiction and class structure that just didn't get carried through into subsequent mm. decades of work on these people. And I think that's probably also true. Like these people were just more clued into the economic realities around them than later generations of academics would be to put it mildly, <laughs> mm -hmm. but what really stuck out to me, and the reason I started us off with that earlier 1920 stuff, is like the way that the word exploitation doesn't appear at yeah, all. True. At yeah. all. Mm -hmm. Either in that early text, in the middle text, until one dimensional man, he basically says that exploitation is no longer the basis of the existing form of domination. So the only, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll find it eventually, but like, aha, those who are directly exploited are no longer the revolutionary subjects. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like exploitation plays this like really ambiguous mm -hmm. role. It is both not the at primary access of critique and therefore the limits of revolutionary subjectivity are external to the, ma the main thrust of the dynamic of exploitation or they're on the margins mm -hmm. of it. But of course, then he still feels like he needs to say that the future utopia, the coming society, the self-determining world would be free of these elements of exploitation. And I feel mm -hmm. that like something important is, well, then why, why is exploitation a problem again? <laughs> like it, it just, it does, cause it wasn't a problem until you said mm -hmm. that it was only a negative problem. It was like a limit condition on how to think about subjectivity, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. the people who are no longer going to be the revolutionary subjects. Mm, interesting. It's not a part of like the way of thinking about the dynamic of capitalism, the, the historical progression of it, but it still needs to be overcome. And my question is, why would it need to be overcome? You know, so there's, there's something in the, fir the first generation of their resistance to thinking about exploitation that I think is like a really important part of why it takes the twists and turns that it that it does and why mm -hmm. it gets so pessimistic like i appreciate the searching for the new subject but there's also like you're gonna get pretty fucking desperate if you're not able to look at the center and you instead have to look at the margins you know that is true yeah, <laughs> yeah i think the way I think that i think about it, i think that that's absolutely right and it seems to be what happened with um this first generation then once we moved to the 1950s and 1960s is that you have these people 
And this is, I, I believe that this is also, you know, after the revelations of Stalin have come out. And they're looking around and they're seeing that it seems as if capitalism is as stable as ever. And, you know, whether this is correct theoretically or not, I, I think that these are thinkers who are, are saying it seems as if capitalism, contrary to what we believed, is not going to create greater and greater immiseration. And thus what would follow is, you know, greater and greater um, organization rebelliousness against capital. I think maybe rightly or wrongly, I'm saying that this is what I think their position was. They're like, oh, fuck. Capitalism is actually raising the standard of living for those who we are hoping would be you know, the kind of vanguard right, spear right. to move us beyond capitalism. Yeah. So they're thinking maybe exploitation is less and less of an explanatory framework for us to understand why capitalism actually is stable rather than crisis ridden. Nice. Now, I think, yeah, again, for yeah. us, 2022, 2008. 2020, you know, 1970, we're like, no, I think I see a lot of crisis. Crisis is definitely But I think they're, they're, they're wondering why is this not congealing into um, a political potency? Again, I want to say right or wrongly, but that's I just a think good, that that's a good that's historical diagnostic. And it also helps explain why the sort of central normative category ceases to be exploitation and becomes repression which is general enough to be able to encompass or ground a critique both of like, you know, American capitalist society and Soviet and Soviet supposed socialism, right? Which is itself an incredibly mm -hmm. repressive society. So I think they're looking for categories that are able to allow them to adequately, you know, criticize both of these things. Yeah. Well, and that's where the psychoanalysis I think becomes really important too, because instead of like in Aristotle civilization, far from talking about exploitation and in one dimensional man too, he's going after the feeling of satisfaction that people have and showing yeah. that it is like an empty mm. illusory satisfaction. Mm. He calls it like mutilated satisfaction and mutilated pleasure. I mean, but this is like why it's, it's hard. So there's all of this discussion about false consciousness in sort of left critical theory world. And it's that's like the bogeyman thing that you're not allowed to like endorse. Like false consciousness is a bad idea, people. But you can see why it became such a, a center point. And then the, the point at which people started to break with this way of doing critical theory, because if your main claim is that you don't have the right orientation on your own pleasures intuitions, enjoyment, like culture, enjoyment of culture, cultural, like products. I'm going to show you that everything you like is actually bad. <laughs> then you do take this position outside, yeah, yeah. like that outside of the subjects to which you are addressing yourself, whoever that may be. And you're telling them that, you know, better than they do. And you might be right, but that's why you, that epistemic like break, with this way of doing things happens because the anchor for telling people it's bad, like it's domination, but it's like domination of a kind of domination that I have to tell you about in a way. Because mm -hmm. you're enjoying it or you think you're enjoying it. Because yeah, you're, you're lapping blast. it up. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're a Dave like, and Buster's. Yeah, Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> you're watching Marvel movies. Yeah, you're Cheesecake Factory. Yeah. Wait, yeah, yeah. Exactly. wait, wait, wait. So but Cheesecake Factory is objectively good, though, so I don't understand oh, that. Oh, well, let me explain oh, your desires let's, to we'll you. We'll leave that for the... Oh, no. That's the Did I just get expelled from the group? Oh, well. You know what's funny? I feel like I've said this to you I think I've said this to you all in, in the group chat once. Um, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to say, I think that this is why um, Afro-pessimism doesn't work too well. Because you know, when you do make this turn, I find that there are really interesting critical resources when you go to psychoanalysis. But when you forget that you know psychoanalysis works in a very specific scene of the analyst and the <laughs> analysand, that you know if the psychoanalyst is going to say, I think there's something yeah. wrong with your desires, as through this constant relationship of talking with the subject, where do we put culture on the couch so that we can you know <laughs> do the analyst work of the analysand? I know some people like they're not going to like hearing that I'm I'm open to being proven wrong, but I just think that's a radical transformation of psycho analysis from at least its theory emerges from the practice of seeing patients 
to becoming a free-floating critique that you're trying to merge with Marxism, those seem to be about two different sciences, that have two different contexts. And so that leads you to becoming the analyst who knows better, who is you know, analyzing everyone's desires. And even if they say, that's, that's yeah. not what I think, you're like, um... I'm pretty sure the ontological structures <laughs> of your subjectivity are anti-black. So, ah, every no you say means you're saying, yes, I am anti-black. And But this is what I, I'm making a joke. And for Afro-pessimists, sorry, I'm black, but sorry to be anti-black. But this is what happens when this just completely unhinges from, I yeah. think, you know, that diagnostic scene. And I know, like, most Afro-pessimists aren't very interested in doing politics but and in the promise of politics. But also just think about how much of a shitty strategy it is like how much of a non-starter it is to like try to gather people and to try to unite people in workplace or wherever it might be by telling them that their whole view of the world is stupid and they the things that they like are stupid pleasures and you guys are a bunch of idiots all right let's go I mean, do this you, you know? y'all didn't have a problem when i mentioned cheesecake factory but other than that i'm with them. well i'm not trying, well i'm not trying to organize with you will so i can tell you that i think your desires are dumb <laughs> Damn. So here's the thing that I, I'll say that, and I know I said in the first place, the contemporary controversies about Marcuse, we weren't getting into it, and I guess I will a little, a little bit. I have listened to some, like, there, there are some various exposés, and I, I listened to a couple of podcasts preparing to this, like, of people talking about Marcuse and its relationship to the kind of current culture war and cancel culture and all of this, and I don't think that there's a straightforward relationship historically, like you're going to sort of draw a line from like, you know, this is a different left wing world. And also just because I was wondering about the difference between Marcuse and a, a, a conservative critique of modernity, mm-hmm. I like and, and try use that as like a conversation starter. I don't actually think Marcuse is a conservative. It's mm-hmm. it's more like when you start with alienation and exploitation isn't the primary problem the process that we have gone through over the course of the past hour to kind of bring out how that emerges with this prop, like this kind of cultural false consciousness thing. I think that that has a pretty direct relationship, like in theory to a kind of culture war attitude. So like you are telling people that their desires are in somehow false, but it's like, a very mystical way of talking about that. Like you have to have good reasons why people shouldn't like the things they do. And people don't like being told what they don't like and, and, and why their tastes are are wrong. They tend to get defensive. And so then you have reactions to this. So like that uprooting of the critique away from exploitation and toward culture, I think that that is, was very, that was dangerous waters for the left to get into, not because there's no legitimate critique of capitalist culture. I happen to think there's, mm-hmm. I think we live in a very alienated society, to be clear. I like the Cheesecake Factory too, but. Yes. <laughs> I've only ever had the cheesecake. It was five out of I'm 10, just saying, and I, lo- but I, and I like lots of trash culture. I'm to- like, I'm totally unashamed of this. I don't come at me. I, I like read rom-coms. It's a whole thing. But there is a problem with like making that the basis of your contestation with somebody alienate, like the different ways in which we react to our alienation and just challenging each other on that basis. I don't know. Like that's a rough place to be in analytically. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if there's like, despite all of Marcuse's cautions and his, you know, especially his emphasis on the importance of linking a critique of alienation and alienated life to, to like capitalism and to the economic, like larger structures, it just is risky territory that like the, I think the way that people latch onto it immediately is to like think about their own desires mm-hmm. and their own life. And then there's an avenue that open that seems to open up towards like, well, maybe it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be the most disalienated best life, but I'm going to like really find like niches of enjoyment and niches of like pleasure and consumption that like get me at least out of like the most like standard, the most like uh, uniform like forms of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know but that even that with all of the caveats you can possibly provide, I just don't know that like you can get away from that risk of if you center alienation, like you were saying, and not exploitation. But even then, like, so, so what if you've got a uniform mode of enjoyment? Right. Like, so what if like everyone likes the same thing as me? Like, who gives a shit? If I like it, I like it. I don't, you know, this isn't a strong enough basis. I don't think for genuine Mm -hmm. critique. 
you know? No, yeah. I think that's right. And but I think you know maybe if Marcuse had you know really more firmly embedded the notion of the performance principle and the problem of exploitation, I think that that really would have radically reshaped the theory. Because I think the performance principle is about the particular ways that we are constrained and enabled to engage with what is a historical form of labor. And so I think if you want to talk about, and I'm I'm with Lillian, like yeah, we live in alienated culture. I also like trash things. You know. We can cut the difference and say, we're not saying something like all the desires we have are just great and healthy and are a product of a flourishing society. But you need a social explanation of you know, what is causing those desires to be distorted. And I think the, the thin outline we get is the performance principle, which as far as I can tell, uh, once he gets the one-dimensional man, that type of critical material work you have been doing fades away and it becomes him just looking aghast at the world mm -hmm. of affluence around him in the United States and thinking, how could any resistance be mounted? But this notion of how we work affects how we desire, how we conceptualize what is possible and what is good, that strikes me as something that could be promising and less polemical. But once you let that go and it's just free-floating desires, fucked up and all of that, then... <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to work with you. <laughs> All right. I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we are really, really grateful. Today's new patrons are Kenichuku Aku, Michael Badu, Jeremy Riggs, Alistair Ilyich, Max Foley-Keen, Ava Craig-Peterson, Paul Tissen, Patrick H.M. Morgan, Jacob Ainsko, Christine Payne, Emma Woodhouse, Jason Campbell, Jim Snedeker, John Schaefer, Will Singh, Ryan Gilbert, Benjamin Thompson, Andrew C., Chaiyu Kai, and Aaron. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and click the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes, bonus videos, and access to our Discord server. You can also buy some What's Left of Philosophy merch from the store linked on our website. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.